Hi, I'm Don Paul on Don Paul's Bits of Blather on weather, climate, science, and occasionally some humor. And today I'm going to embark on something autobiographical. By the way, if you've been enjoying this blog, again, please share it. My keyboard, word of mouth helps blogs grow, especially if you're not a national celebrity, which I am not. And this is uh, from an article I wrote a little over three years ago for the Buffalo News. And uh, for the most part, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it's all true. And I don't think it will bore you in the least. It sure didn't bore me. One of my most cherished pre-TV weather jobs was spending more than two years in a non-weather related job at the flunky level at WNEW Radio in New York. That was the station where Frank Sinatra started. If you watch the uh, Netflix bio on Frank, uh, which is available now, you'll see there's a significant segment in there where he talks about uh, broadcasting he had done on WNEW. Anyway, this station, it was sophisticated. It had the best local newsroom in American radio. Lots of their newspeople went on to the networks. And, well, Natch, I fit right in. If Frank could start there, so could I. After all, I grew up in an apartment just two or three miles north of his apartment in Hoboken. I snagged a job as a desk assistant. Read that, hey, copy boy, 92 bucks a week in the newsroom. My rent for a basement studio right across the Hudson in Jersey was $155. I was living La Vida Broca, but man, I was loving every minute of it because part of my job was to type traffic reports, which consisted of info I basically stole from the WCBS and WOR radio helicopter traffic reporters. I had to actually join the Writers Guild and the dues. Well, they took that $92 down to $89. Now, to be an appreciated flunky at such an institution as WNEW was a dream I never really knew I had. In that job, I cleared 12 teletypes. Every few minutes, I hauled rolls of teletype paper up from a roach-infested basement. But hey, I was working at a station on Fifth Avenue and 46th Street, where the roaches had panache. While I was juggling these duties, I got a so-called promotion to become an assistant to our chief reporter, a great reporter named Jim Gash. Jim had a vision handicap, and he needed a literate driver, an assistant who had some interest in news and who could do some phone legwork, helping him set up interviews. He really was a standout reporter. Every day was an adventure. We covered some great stories, the Serpico hearings, the anti uh, police corruption hearings. And we got these stories partly because Jim was pals with another great reporter, WNBC TV's Gabe Pressman. Gabe died just a couple of years ago at age 93, and he was still producing weekly features for WNBC, Channel 4 in New York. Now, Gabe and Gash really liked each other, and they used to feed each other stories, often biggies. Both of them were excellent at getting Governor Nelson Rockefeller or Mayor John Lindsay and other politicians to spit out pithy sound bites they didn't give to the rest of the press. The morning after the Attica prison uprising, my boss and pressman 
were able to corner Rockefeller coming out of his 81st Street and 5th Avenue apartment at 6 in the morning to get an exclusive interview, although it seemed that Rocky was planning on ducking the press that day. He looked visibly shaken at what had actually happened in the Attica assault when 39 people were killed by state police retaking the prison after he had been assured by the state police superintendent loss of life would be less than that. My most memorable story working with Jim Gash was the shooting of Joe Colombo, Brooklyn mob boss, the boss for that borough. It was a warm summer morning, and Gash asked me to get an unmarked mobile unit up to Columbus Circle, where the Bollywood Italian-American Civil Rights Day was going to be celebrated. And in reality, the Italian-American Civil Rights League behind that event was nothing more than a Joe Colombo mafia front. The League was trying to work up public anger toward all the ongoing federal arrests and indictments. It was organized by Colombo, and he did so against the wishes of the other Dons who didn't want the publicity. Colombo demanded loyalty. In fact, Colombo threw still liberal Frank Sinatra out of his League because Sinatra supported Mayor Lindsay over city judge Mario Procaccino, who was running against Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay was running for re-election. When I arrived at Columbus Circle at about a quarter to six in the morning, I parked our unmarked unit with its NYP license plates and got out, and a hefty guy said, Hey, kid, you can't park there. I inquired as to why not, seeing that I had the NYP press plates which in New York City, back then at least, allowed you to park anywhere but in a DPL diplomatic zone or in front of a fire hydrant. So I asked this rather swarthy gent if he was a police officer. He responded curtly in the negative and urged me to move my expletive-deleted car. This was a man of little nuance. We went back and forth, and I began to get a little feisty. A young NYPD cop snorted a giggle. He waved me over and asked, do you know who you're arguing with? Nope. Who the hell is he? That's fat Tony Salerno. Even I'm not sure I'd argue with that guy. Uh, you could check out his bio on the New York Times website. He was a major hard hitman mobster, but I didn't know that. He kind of looked like one, though. Well, anyway, my memory's hazy, but I think I did move the green Chevelle to 59th Street. Now, later that morning, I was shooting the breeze with a desk assistant slash copy boy from WINS News Radio. And we thought we heard firecrackers. Turned out the firecrackers were gunshots. A move had been made against Colombo, whose henchmen immediately shot and killed the hitman before the cops could even intervene. Colombo had been shot in the head and the neck. He was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, where the press waited outside for word of what seemed to be his imminent death. Now, I was in that press mob wearing my laminated NYPD press card when a black Cadillac limo pulled up and a few ominous-looking types, like in the movies, wearing dark suits, got out. Some of the reporters hissed, that's Gambino. Carlo Gambino was the head don in New York. And WABC TV reporter Bob Lape told me, take off that damn badge and go, you know, sidle up to those guys. See if you can hear what they're talking about. I did so with surprising stealth. 
but like Sergeant Schultz, I heard nothing, just some mumbled grumbles. And when one of these guys noticed a kid was leaning in trying to eavesdrop, they just got back in the limo. Thanks for nothing, kid, Lape said with profound gratitude. As for Columbo, his death was not so imminent. He lived on in a semi-vegetative state for seven more years. He didn't get around much anymore, but he did last longer than our next character. Most mob leaders were convinced the hit on Columbo was directed by Crazy Joey Gallo. Gallo was an arch-Columbo rival who, despite being a thug, somehow managed to exude some charm the other Dons didn't possess. And this Gallo actually got into high society. He even befriended people like Jerry Orbach and his wife. What's this got to do with the story of my life? Well, about 15 years ago, Dave Letterman asked Don Rickles about having to work in mob-owned places early in his career. And Rickles quickly corrected Dave. said, oh, it's not that long ago. For example, as a favor, he played the Copacabana in 1972, then owned by a shady character named Jules Podell. The owner warned him Crazy Joey Gallo was out in front, and he told Don this heavy-duty mobster might seem friendly, but he had a ferocious temper. He strongly advised Rickles to lay off Gallo. Rickles said to Dave, Man, that's like waving a red cape in front of me. Toto! I went after him all night, and he loved it. Tears down his cheeks. Rickles said Gallo came backstage and warmly begged Don to join him and his pals at Umberto's Clam House. That place is still there on Mulberry Street in Lower Manhattan. Well, Rickles, he came up with excuses, said his wife was waiting for him back at the hotel, and he got out of it. This was fortunate for the world of comedy. That night at around 5 a.m., four gangsters came into Umberto's and disposed of Gallo with 38s and 45s. In the end, this was seen as extremely negative feedback for the Columbo hit. Hearing this Rickles story, I realized, unbeknownst to him, Donald J. Rickles reminded Donald J. Paul, those are our real names, that even as a flunky, I was on the fringes of mob history. By the way, quick sidebar on this terrific reporter, Jim Gash. Um, my job during morning drive time was, as I said, to steal traffic reports, then type them out for the news people and the morning man. And uh, one morning at 8.30, one of the news anchors at WNEW, as a prank, typed out in perfect format, just as seen on the NYPD crime teletype, that there was a gorilla, gorilla climbing the Empire State Building down on 34th Street. And my boss, Jim Gash, demanded that I go with him and drive him down there quickly. And I said, I can't. I have to stay on this traffic desk till 9 a.m., well, he said something rather negative, went down there and came back. Nobody said a word, not him and not the rest of the newsroom who knew Gash had been punked. Well, thanks for listening this far. Again, I hope you share this blog. This is a little departure, and I will be talking with you very shortly in the next oh, 24, 36 hours.